Well, we are looking again at Mark's Gospel, so I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And today we're looking at verses 21 through 28. Verses 21 through 28. Mark says, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet. And come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district. Of Galilee. The Bible teaches that Jesus possesses all authority. In fact, that's what he told his disciples in Matthew 28 and verse 18. He said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In other words, there is no place where his authority does not extend. He has authority over everyone and over everything. Again, there is no limit to his authority. And the Bible demonstrates his authority in a number of ways. And let me just give you a few of them. First, it's seen in creation. The Bible says when everything was created in Genesis 1 and 2, that it was Jesus who actually created it. John 1.3 says, All things came into being through him, that is through Jesus, and apart from him, apart from Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. Everything we see, both in the physical and spiritual realm, was created by the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, nothing or no one exists apart from him. And if it wasn't for Jesus and his role in creation, then you and I wouldn't even be here. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. The all things includes all life. Everything. All people, whether they're redeemed or not, He made us. We're made in His image. And He did that uh, for one reason. If you'll look down at the last line of Colossians 1.16, it says, All things have been created through Him, and here it is, and for Him. We were created for Him. 
The Westminster Catechism says it this way, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's what's on the wall over there. Man was created for Jesus, for that one purpose, and that was to glorify and enjoy Him. And so that's one of the ways in which the authority of Christ is seen in that He created you. He created me. He created all things. A second way that we see His authority demonstrated was over spiritual creatures like angels, demons, Satan. When he was tempted three times by Satan, he told him after the third temptation to leave. And what did Satan do? He left, right? When he told the demons to come out of a person, what did they do? They came out. And since he had full authority, actually all he had to do was just say a word. And they would have to obey. So a second way in which we see his authority demonstrated is by over the creatures in which he's created, angels, whether they're holy or fallen, Satan, who is also an angel. A third way in which his authority was demonstrated that we see in Scripture is over death. In John chapter 11, after Lazarus died and had been in the grave for four days, he said to Lazarus to come out of the grave. And what did he do? He came out of the grave, right? And why did he come out of the grave? Because he had the authority to raise the dead. When he even spoke about his own death, we're told in John 10, 17 and 18, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative, and I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this commandment I received from my Father. So when we look back at the people that took his life and nailed him to a cross, they could only do that because he had laid down his life for them to do that. All throughout the ministry, he would say things like, my time has not come. And therefore, they could not take him. They could not do anything to him until that appointed time in which had been ordained for that. But we see his authority. It's over creation, it's over angels, it's over demons, it's over Satan. And a fourth way I would, I would mention, and this would really lead us into the text, is that he demonstrates his authority, and it will be certainly seen in the future when he judges the dead. John 5.22 says that he has given all judgment to the Son. And even Acts 17.31 says that God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed. And who is that man? Well, the text says it's Jesus. And again, all authority had been given to Him. And when you think about the text that's before us, we learn that when Jesus began His Galilean ministry, that no one knew anything about Him until they met and spent time with Him even though that he spent a year in Judea ministering. But here in Galilee, they were not very familiar with him. Andrew spent a day with him, and after he spent a day with him, he comes home to tell his brother Peter, we have found the Messiah, and then he takes Peter to him, to meet him. 
Two other men, James and John, they were the sons of Zebedee, they met Jesus, and they were told to follow him. And what did they do? They followed him. So we see now how Jesus demonstrated his authority over people. And we saw that last time when he called his first disciples in verses 16 through 20. And now Mark takes us into Capernaum, where once again we see his authority as he teaches, and he casts out a demon from a man in the synagogue. But before we look at this text, we need to understand that there are events that the other gospel writers mentioned, but once again Mark passes over. He had already skipped over a full year of his ministry in Judea, and now there are several weeks that he doesn't mention. Lowell Johnson says during the several weeks that are not mentioned by Mark, Jesus was carrying out his ministry in Nazareth, his hometown. It was during this time that he preached the Sermon on the Mount. He called the rest of the twelve disciples. It was also during this period that Jesus suffered rejection at the hands of the people in his hometown of Nazareth. According to Luke four sixteen to 20 Jesus preached in the synagogue of Nazareth and proclaimed himself to be the Messiah Israel had long anticipated. The people rejected his claims and even tried to kill him. And as a result, Jesus and his men left Nazareth. They moved their ministry to Capernaum, which would become his base for ministry. And it's there that Mark picks up the narrative. So Mark says nothing about, <clears throat> nothing about the ministry in Judea. And he says nothing about his ministry in Nazareth. Now, you've got to keep in mind that this is just one of the four Gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each give their own account of Jesus and his ministry. Some of them mention things the others do not. We know that's clear from what I just mentioned to you. There are not any contradictions when you read the Gospels. They are actually perspectives. And I've told you this before. If you had four people trying to describe this building, and you place them at four different locations outside around this building, each would describe the building, right? But each would give their own perspective of what they're seeing. I believe that's what's going on in the four Gospels. Each presented, had presented what they saw, what they heard, and they reported it. So now when you look down to verse 21, Mark is going to tell us or begin to tell us two things. So let's first notice the first one. And that is in verse 21, we see Jesus beginning to teach. Mark says that they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Now we already know from verses 16 through 20 that his first four disciples were with him. We see that by the context. We also see that by the use of the plural they in verse 21. They is referring back to verses 16 to 20 with Jesus calling his first four disciples. So it is Jesus and his disciples. They come into Capernaum. Now Capernaum uh, had another name. The Arabs call Capernaum Tauhum or Telhum. The Hebrew name Kafar Nahum, it means the village of Nahum. 
Now, you've heard that name Nahum, if you're a student of the Bible. That's the name of an Old Testament prophet. And it's very possible that this town, this village, uh, got its name from the prophet. And if that's the case, then Capernaum would actually date back to the days of Nahum. In addition to this, Matthew is the only one that gives us a location that we actually know. And that's in Matthew 4.13. It says, After leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. The west shore was actually settled by the tribe of Naphtali. Now, Scripture gives few details about that first year of his public ministry. Most of what we know about those months is found in John's Gospel, and it tells us that he ministered mostly in Judea. However, in John 2.12, it mentions a brief visit to Capernaum, but it doesn't give us any details. This is not the Capernaum that we're in now. This was before. John 2.12 says, After this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples And it says they stayed there a few days. So this was not what you're seeing here in Mark. Now, the Gospels refer to Jesus' own city being Capernaum. It says in Matthew 9, 1, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and he came to his own city. Mark 2, 1 says when they came back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. So where was his home at? Capernaum. He's no longer in Nazareth, where he was raised. Remember, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. Now he is in Capernaum. So he went to Capernaum to live for some time. Now Capernaum, very interesting about this city, it was the very center of fishing, the very center of trade. We know that it was the center of fishing because archaeologists have actually found fish hooks among the artifacts during excavation. We also know that the town was a Roman taxing polling station because we're told that when Jesus called Matthew, Matthew was at the tax booth and he was in Capernaum. We also know that the town had a Roman garrison, according to Matthew chapter 8. According to Matthew 8, 5, after Jesus had entered Capernaum, it says he met a centurion. Now, archaeologists have also discovered a millstone which was about 100 meters northeast of the synagogue bearing an inscription. And that inscription was this, Imperator Caesar Divinum. What's that mean? Well, that means the Emperor Caesar of the Divine. And that's basically indicating that this was some kind of strategic post for Rome. It's also important to note that if you're doing any kind of word study on Capernaum, guess what? You're only going to find it in the Gospels. Capernaum is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in any of the epistles. It's only mentioned in the Gospels. And when it's mentioned, it's mentioned about 16 times. But the sad thing about Capernaum is that Jesus later pronounces judgment on Capernaum. Because they saw his miracles, and they did not repent. 
In Matthew eleven twenty three, it says, and this is uh, one of the woes or one of the judgments that he began to pronounce. And he said, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So this place that Jesus lived in, they didn't receive him. The place that he left, that he grew up, they didn't receive him either. Why is that? Mark not only tells us the place, but he also tells us when they came into Capernaum. He says they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath. So it was on the Sabbath when they came into Capernaum and Jesus goes into the synagogue and he begins to teach. And that was something that he did all the time. That was actually his custom. At every Sabbath, he was where? In the synagogue. Now, I believe that the reason for mentioning the Sabbath is really probably three reasons. The first would be it would indicate the time. It would indicate the day that he entered the synagogue. It would indicate when he came there, when he began teaching. So that would be the first reason for mentioning the Sabbath. The second was because they met on the Sabbath for worship. This was fundamental for Israel. Every Sabbath, they went to the temple and they worshipped. But you know what? By this time, there is no temple. But there are synagogues. We'll talk about that in just a moment. The third reason I believe that the Sabbath is mentioned is because many of the things that Jesus did were on the Sabbath, and it was a challenge to their perversion of the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath was the traditional day of rest for the Jewish people. And they got that from Genesis, because after God created, it says he rested on the seventh day. So that's where it finds its roots. And not only that, that they were told in Exodus chapter 20 to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. But you know what's very interesting? That when you come into the New Testament, that that command is not there. The other ten commandments, the other nine, are mentioned in the New Testament. But that commandment is not. It's very interesting. Does that mean it didn't matter anymore? Well, no, I believe what's going on is because after Jesus had resurrected from the grave, he resurrected on Sunday, and that was when the church would meet. So the Sabbath was shifted to Sunday. And this would be when the church would meet for worship. The word Sabbath itself, the Hebrew word Shabbath, it means to cease or to desist. And it's really a cessation from work. But if you know anything about the Jewish leaders, this is something that they perverted. 
It's very interesting that during the time of the Second Temple in Jerusalem, the Jewish rabbis, they actually banned 39 tasks that couldn't be performed on the Sabbath. Uh, this was known as the Melashat, and it means creative work in Hebrew. And the tasks were based on the types of work that would be required to build the tabernacle in the wilderness as is described in the Old Testament. And that became the basis for banning certain types of work. And listen to some of the things that they banned. The tasks were sowing, plowing, reaping, gathering, threshing, winnowing, sorting, grinding, kneading, baking, shearing, washing, combing, dyeing, spinning, weaving, making a knot, untying a knot, sewing, tearing, trapping, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, scraping, cutting, writing, erasing, building, demolishing, putting out a fire, starting a fire, completing any kind of work, carrying anything, transferring anything, using any kind of material or object in a way that alters it, completing or planning or harvesting. And if that wasn't enough, you could add buying and selling, exchanging money, engaging in trade, traveling, lighting a fire where it's for cooking or heating. This is what was imposed on this day. And that's not what it was meant for. And Jesus was very angry over their abuse of the Sabbath. That if you'll go to chapter 3, it says, He entered again into the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. Notice this. They were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to him, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how that they might destroy him. Isn't that amazing? They saw and witnessed a miracle. And they, as if to not even notice that it happened, they're more into following a certain form or ritual or prescription that they had imposed on everyone. This is not what the Sabbath meant. In fact, they kept changing their interpretation of it. Jesus actually said in Mark 2.27 that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Lord, or the Son of Man, is Lord even of the Sabbath. But again, I find it very interesting that they see a miracle take place. Here is a man with a withered hand, and it's restored. You know, that, that reminds me of other things that have happened where Jesus would heal and they missed it. Or how about in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to arrest him? Peter pulls out his sword, he goes for the head of Malchus, and he ducks. 
and he gets his ear. And I tell you what, looking at the Greek text on that, his ear was dangling by skin. Jesus touches his ear and restores it. He gives him a new ear. And they missed it. And I'll tell you what, Malchus didn't miss it. But the rest of the people did. And it's stuff like that that angered him. Their abuse of the Word of God. You go into chapter 15 of Matthew and he confronts them about their traditions and that their traditions were more to them than obeying the Word of God. When they have a situation where their parents have a need and they are to provide for their parents in their old age, provide for them in their time of need, they say that, it's Corbin. I can't help you. My gift has been given to God. And so they wouldn't help. Later, Paul tells us that if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever, an infidel. But that's what these people were like. This is what Jesus ministered in the midst of. That's not really much different than today. Because we're not ministering in a welcoming environment. In fact, it's becoming more and more less welcoming. Well, verse 21 continues. They went into Capernaum. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. And he begins to teach. So Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. The word synagogue means assembly means gathering. The term is from Greek, but it reflects a Hebrew, which means house of gathering. Some believe when you start doing a history on the synagogues that the first synagogue for Israel would have occurred in 586 when they were in Babylon. Because now you have no temple, they have no place to go to worship, and so they began to form synagogues. Small groups, they would meet in homes. They would meet in public places to study. And here's what they would study. They would study the Torah. The Torah was the first five books of Moses. They would pray together, and then they would share in a communal meal. We're told that by the first century, the synagogue had become so important and central to Jewish life that the Talmud, now the Talmud was composed of what was called the Mishnah. The Mishnah, which was the rabbinic interpretations of the Torah. And it also would have the Gemara. The Gemara was basically a commentary on the Mishnah. And so we're told in the Talmud that there were roughly 500 synagogues that existed at the time of the Roman Emperor Vespasian and it occurred in Jerusalem. So in Jerusalem, there were over 500 synagogues. That's a lot. That's like today. We have a church just about on every corner, don't we? Take your pick. I don't like that building. I don't like that building. I like how they keep their yard. Some people choose over things like that. Some people go, no, uh, they've got good parking. They've got good access to the door. I can get in. They've got good access to the restrooms. Uh, you know, I, I can make myself around this building, so they'll judge and base their decisions on coming to that church for those reasons. 
Other people, they come into the church and they see things that the people have at once were bothered with a few times, but after a while of looking at it, they decided now it didn't bother them anymore. They don't even think about it. So you have new people coming in, and that sticks out like a sore thumb, and they look at that and they say, well, if they're not willing to take care of their building, they're certainly not going to be willing to take care of me. Then they go somewhere else. There are all kinds of reasons, and there are some, of course, that come to church and they don't care what the building looks like because they're only there for one reason, and that is to worship God. But then you got some that come to church and say, no, I'll, I'll add to that reason. I do come to worship, but I also come to stimulate one another. Everybody has a different reason. But we do find they came together to study God's word and to pray and to share in a fellowship meal together. In 1913, there was a Greek inscription found in Jerusalem that dated back to the first century. It said that the synagogue was built, and here it is, for the purpose of reciting the law and studying the commandments, and as a hotel with chambers and water installation to provide for the needs of itinerants from abroad. See, it's interesting that you had people like Philo that would said that the synagogue would draw its name from houses of instruction because that's where the law was read on the Sabbath and explained. And during the week, it was actually a school. Also during the week, it became a civil court. So you had scribes who would teach. You had elders who would teach. And they would also become the judges who would rule in cases of law. Josephus tells us that there were about 240 towns and villages in Galilee, and all of them had synagogues. In fact, if you wanted to start a synagogue, you could do that, but you had to have nine other Jewish men that were above the age of 13, and then you could start a synagogue. Another writer says, no, it was 10 married men. Then you could start a synagogue, so take your choice. But each synagogue would have a rabbi, and that rabbi functioned more like an organizer. And then you would have elders and scribes. They would be the teachers. And then you would have the people come. And as I said, the custom was for the Lord Jesus is that every Sabbath, he would be in the synagogue. Now, just a footnote, if you were to go south of the synagogue there in Capernaum, you would find a, this stone building that was used in previous centuries for a church. Inside the walls, they found stones from another structure, and they also found something inscribed on the walls. Guess what they found? They found letters that they interpreted as the name Peter. They believed that that church originally was the home of Peter and Andrew. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but it sounds pretty plausible, doesn't it? Right there in the same area, same location, and also to find something inscribed on the wall. Now, it could be just graffiti. It could be stuff like you find on walls today where someone says they were there 
and they'll write their name and says, was here, and then they move on. Or somebody writes someone else's name on the wall. <laughs> when I was a school teacher, this was something that we did have a problem with. And we could certainly never find out who did it. You couldn't say the person's name on the wall was the person who did it because that sounds pretty foolish to write your name on the wall and you don't want to get caught, right? Well, Mark doesn't tell us anything about what Jesus was teaching. He just says in verse 21, he entered the synagogue and he began to teach. But what he does do, and it's in verse 22, is he focuses on the response of the crowd. And he tells us that the crowd was amazed. Look at what he says in verse 22. He says, They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The word amazed, it means to become astounded to such a degree as to really lose your mental composure. They were literally blown away when they heard him teach. They were overwhelmed, if I could say it that way. They had never heard anyone teach like him. In fact, one of the officers that were sent on another occasion to arrest Jesus, and he came back without Jesus, and they asked him, why didn't you bring him? He said, I've never heard a man speak the way this man spoke. Could you imagine sitting there listening to him speak? Oh, wait a minute. We can. We can hear that. You know how we hear it? The Bible. We can hear how he taught in the Bible. We can hear what he said that's recorded for us. Now, everything he did, everything he said, every miracle he did was not recorded. We know that. In fact, it's uh, John that tells us that, that there wouldn't be enough books to hold all the information about him, of what all he did while he was here. But what we do have is exactly what God wanted us to have. Nothing more, nothing less. So they were very overwhelmed. It's interesting, Mark uses the imperfect tense when he notes their response, and that means that the, the audience was actually astonished, and that matched the teaching of Jesus. As long as he taught, they stayed overwhelmed. I mean, they were just blown away. When the crowd heard him give the really his longest sermon that's recorded, which is the Sermon on the Mount, which covers Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. All three of those chapters is one sermon. At the end of that, it says, when he had finished these words, the crowds were amazed. It's the same word. They were amazed at his teaching. And then we find the same phrase, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. What does that mean? That his teaching was with authority and not like the scribes. Well, not only did he teach with authority, but it tells us in Luke 4.32, his message was also with authority. So it wasn't just his mannerism and his approach and his style that came across authoritatively, but it was also the message itself. You know, I remember hearing years ago when I was preparing for ministry, I remember hearing a pastor talk about uh, police officers in California that would actually get flunked out of the academy if they didn't have authoritative voice. Because they didn't want 
a police officer, and back then there were no women police officers, it was just men. Back then they didn't want a male police officer yelling at a robber saying, Stop! Hold up! In the name of the law! They didn't want that. They wanted a man with an authoritative voice. Stop! Right now! Doesn't that sound authoritative? I know I have the help of a microphone, but... The point is, is that if, if you have one of these sissy voices, forgive me for saying it that way, but that's the only way I can communicate it to you, then that was not a voice of authority, and they flunked you out. They didn't want you as a police officer. It didn't matter about all your other skills, but it mattered about that one. Well, we don't hear anything like that about Jesus. The word authority here, it means rule and dominion. It talks about jurisdiction and power and privilege and prerogative and when he spoke, he spoke with absolute conviction. He spoke with objectivity. He spoke with authority and dominion. He spoke as if he were in charge and as if this was absolute truth. It wasn't arbitrary. It was logical. It wasn't evasive. It was concrete. It wasn't esoteric. It was reasonable. It wasn't mythical or muddied. It was systematic. He taught on essential matters. He didn't teach on trivial things. His teaching was clear by way of illustration and progression. It wasn't confusing. It wasn't allegorical. It had conviction. It wasn't suggestion. And they had never heard anything like this. And I tell you what, folks, we need more men that will speak authoritatively the Word of God and be clear and objective and speak with conviction instead of what's going on today. Entertain the masses. That's the only thing that they can ascribe to many times to church growth is because they've changed their approach and they've dumbed down the message and they've changed their target. The people in the pews, the ones that they're targeting, are the unbelieving ones in the pews. They're not targeting the believers. But let me ask you a question. Don't you need to know what the Word of God says? Don't you need to understand the Word of God? And aren't you the only ones that can understand it over an unbeliever? I mean, there's some things face value that an unbeliever can understand, but God tells us in Matthew 13, in fact, Jesus specifically said to the apostles that the reason why He spoke to the people in parables because he said to them, the disciples, the apostles, it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God and not to them. That's why he spoke to them in parables. But you know, he says here, as they heard him teach, it was not like the scribes. Well, how did the scribes teach? Well, they didn't speak with authority. <laughs> In fact, they delegated the authority. They spoke about other rabbis, and that was their authority. They prided themselves on being able to attach themselves to the past and to quote various revered rabbis. But here, Jesus didn't quote anybody. He didn't get his theology from anyone else. And he didn't give his views like the rabbis did. So they weren't used to that. And his teaching literally blew their minds. See, the scribes prided themselves on 
familiarity with all the possible views. They prided themselves on twisted musings. They prided themselves on obscure insights and mystical notions and never saying anything original. Now, you also have to think, too, that most people during this time were illiterate. They didn't have copies of the Scripture. Scriptures were kept in private places. They were only available in the synagogue, and it was only available to the people who had access to them. So some people had to hear the Scriptures read to them, explained to them. You know, it's interesting. That would be a a pre-technology era. Because what do we have now? We have technology. On this technology, you can read your Bible, right? But what else can you do with it? You can listen to your Bible being read to you. Well, that would fit more of the time. So the people had to hear the Scripture in that manner. And the scribes were not the one to give it to them because the scribes didn't do that. You know, it's interesting that they would give a scribe a title of rabbi. You know what the word rabbi actually means? It means honored one. No wonder did the Pharisees also like that title. They wanted to be honored in the synagogues. And they would take the robes that they wear and the tassels on them and they would make them longer. And they would take the boxes that would pin to their forehead, which was called a phylactery, and it would have a copy of the law. And they would take that and make it bigger. And they had phylactery on their arm. They'd make it bigger to draw attention. When they would give, when they would put in the temple tax, they would make a big show about it. They wanted people to see it. And you know why they did this? Matthew 6 tells us that they got the reward of men. It was all for show. Well, again, they liked that title, Honored One. And so for Jesus to speak authoritatively by quoting no one and speaking concretely and objectively and clearly, again, was something that they were not used to. Now, Mark tells us that, of course, they were astounded at his teaching, and then all of a sudden there was an interruption. We've had interruptions. We had one a few months ago where a guy stood up in the middle of the aisle and started shouting perverse things. We had to get him out. Uh, we might say that that guy could have been demon-possessed, for all we know. We don't know. But it's interesting that this interruption occurs in verse 23. And it came from a man in the synagogue, and we're told that that man had an unclean spirit. In other words, he had a demon. The terms unclean spirit, that's synonym, a synonym for demon. And they're used interchangeably in Scripture. Some translations refer to them as impure spirits. But Scripture does refer to demons as unclean, and it does it well over 20 times in the New Testament. And by using the term unclean, it's speaking about their wickedness. They're not only wicked, but they also delight in wickedness, and they promote wickedness, and they seek to contaminate all of God's creation with their filth. They have foul, putrid natures, and it's in direct contrast to the incorruptible Word of God. Well, it says in verse 
23, all of a sudden, this man in the synagogue, he has an unclean spirit and he does something in verse 23. He cries out. Now, this is very interesting. You know why this is interesting? Because usually demons don't want to be discovered. You know that? But that's not true here. When Jesus spoke the truth, it caused the demon to cry out. Another word would be shriek. That is a strong emotional outcry. In fact, it's translated in other places, like Matthew 15, 23, it's translated shout or shouting. It's translated in chapter 5 and verse 5 of Mark as screaming. It's translated in Acts 7.57 as yelling. So now get the picture. Jesus is teaching. The crowd is overwhelmed at the authority by which he teaches. He's not quoting rabbis like the rabbis do. Jesus was a rabbi. He was like a visiting rabbi coming in here. And everything he did was very similar to the other rabbis, with the exception of the fact that he didn't quote other rabbis when he taught. And then the second exception is, of course, what happened with this interruption. So that demon cried out. This would have been a loud interruption. Would have drawn attention. You know what happens when somebody comes in the door, it makes a little bit of noise. What does everybody do? They turn their head and look at the door. You turn to where the noise is. Could you imagine this situation? Here is a man possessed by a demon. And he begins to cry out with this loud shout, this loud scream. And then he says this. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And what he was doing, by what he said, was exposing Jesus' true identity. See, all the demons, Satan included, know their fate. Right? What did he say here? Have you come to destroy us? They know their fate. I want you to notice also the plural we that's used here. This was not just one demon. This was many. This man was possessed by many demons, but only one of them spoke out. What business do we have with each other? Have you come to destroy us? So it's more than one. Similar phrase is used in Matthew 8, 29. But that phrase adds another phrase to it. Have you come to destroy us before the time? There's definitely a time coming when God will judge Satan and all fallen angels. Scripture tells us that when Satan was cast out of heaven, Revelation 12, 4, he took a third of the angels with him in his rebellion. Some of these fallen angels were sent directly to the abyss Pit, 2 Timothy 2.4 tells us that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. That Greek word used there for hell is the word Tartarus. And the word Tartarus was a place 
that was actually lower than Hades, and it was reserved for the most wicked of human beings, the most wicked of demons and gods. And it eventually came to be used by the Jews to describe the place where fallen angels were sent. It's, again, defined as the lowest hell, the deepest pit, the most terrible place of torture, the place of eternal suffering. And we're told in 1 Peter 3 that Jesus, in spirit, entered this place when his body was in the grave and he proclaimed a triumph over those demons that were bound at that time. In fact, these demons are still bound. We have a reference in Jude 1.6. It says, And the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Revelation 9 says that some of them are going to be released in the middle of Daniel's 70th week. Over in Revelation 9.13, there actually tells us there are four demons there that are bound by the Euphrates River. They're going to be released at the end of Daniel's 70th week. And the ones that were not bound, they are accompanying Satan even up to this day. But he and all demons, Satan and all fallen angels will be destroyed in the lake of fire. Revelation 20 verse 10 says, And the devil who deceived him was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Then Matthew 25 41 says that the eternal fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So they know their fate. They know that they will be destroyed in the lake of fire. They know that Jesus is the judge. Look at what else they said. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Demons couldn't deny it. The very thing that false teachers deny, the very demons from hell affirm. Did you find that interesting? Because who is controlling false teachers? Demons. But the demons knew who Jesus was. We know that in, right there in that verse, verse 24. You are the Holy One of God. In Mark 3.11, they called Him the Son of God. In Mark 5.7, they called Him the Son of the Most High God. They know who Jesus is. In fact, on another occasion, there were some people casting, trying to cast out demons, and the demons spoke to them and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And then they attacked them. It's interesting, again, to hear that the demons know exactly who Jesus is, but the crowd didn't. In fact, verse 27 tells us the crowd debated among themselves. Oh, what did Jesus do? Well, verse 25, he rebukes him and says, Come out of him. He says, Be quiet. Come out of him, and throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Now, before I move away from this, let me just ask you a question. Is demon possession possible today? Yes, yes sir, it is. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, with having a child that's disabled, 
Uh, at one point, there was a question that crossed my mind was whether any of this was demonic. Why can't I go there? His illnesses are in the Bible. And some people with the kind of illnesses that my son has were possessed by demons. But this is where I came to terms and say, no, it's not a demon. His, his problem was related to an injury. Wasn't anything like we're reading here. R.C. Sproul says, what Jesus said would not be considered polite conversation. A more accurate translation of what he said to the demon would be this. Shut up! I don't want to hear anything else from you. Come out! That's more like what you heard. And immediately the unclean spirit came out. Verse 26. But first he threw the man into convulsions. And he cried out again with another scream. And this caused the crowd to be amazed. Verse 27, so they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. See, they question this to each other. Hybert says their response is seen by the present tense. The picture is really a, a prolonged, animated discussion. Yeah, it's very interesting that the Talmud says that there is a rabbi who was the convener of the Yavna Council, which was around 90 AD. He developed a, a structure of post-temple rabbinic Judaism. He studied speech, which was called the Shadim. And the Shadim meant dis talking about demonic speech. But I like the end of this. It says, even though he might be able to understand their speech, but they didn't obey him. You see, brothers and sisters, we can run around all day long and we can shout things at demons and we can shout things at Satan, but we don't have that authority. You know that? Now, people that come in with Mark 16, when we finally get there, we'll explain Mark 16. But I guarantee you it's not what you're reading. It is not what you're reading. Some textual issues in that chapter. We'll deal with it when we get there. See, they didn't obey that rabbi because he didn't have any authority over them like Jesus had. You know, the people that are demon-possessed and you try your mark at something like this, they're not going to obey you either because you don't have that authority. In fact, in the Scriptures, not even all the apostles seem to be able to do this. We only read a few of them doing this. When you get to the apostles' associates, the same is true with them. These were people that were close to to the apostles, and they weren't doing it either. And the same way with the gifts themselves. You know, we've talked about this before. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says it's the Holy Spirit who, who gives you your spiritual gift. And not all spiritual gifts are the same, and not everybody has the same gift. So it would make sense that all the apostles would not be able to do this. And some could. Because again, not all of them possess that gift. Now Mark ends this in verse 28 by telling us that Jesus' popularity, it grew after this. Could you imagine? It says, immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. In other words, no longer a secret. The word's out. A teacher named Jesus from Nazareth, he's astounding everyone with his teaching and his authority over demons. 
come hearing. <laughs> Could you imagine the word spreading now? Hey, were you at the synagogue in Capernaum the other day? Did you hear what happened? There's this man, he cried out, he was, had a demon in him. And this Jesus guy cast the demon out. And he came out. Yep, his news spread. But as we close, let me give you a statement by Linsky. Linsky makes a statement that's very good. He says this, These people, talking about the crowd, they fell short in apprehending what stood forth in their synagogue that Sabbath day. They didn't have a clue. All they could say was, what is this? They didn't say, who is this? That's what they missed. They missed his teaching, his healing, his miracles, his power over demons and Satan. All those things demonstrate who Jesus is. And they missed it. All they could focus in on is what happened with that demon-possessed man. Now, don't get me wrong. That's a pretty miraculous thing that happened. But instead of saying, what is this? Why didn't they say, who is this? Who is this that had such authority over demons that he could cause them to leave? And they'd leave. You've heard the same thing today. Have you missed it? I would just say don't get caught up in, with amazement at these things that Jesus did. Be caught up in what it revealed about him. He is the Son of God, as revealed in verse 1. Mark closes by telling us that the effect went beyond Capernaum. And it went out immediately, everywhere, all the surrounding region of Galilee. The news about this went out, and the news about him. You see, there are people that come to church week after week, and they sit there in the pew, and they hear some very credible evidence given to them from the Bible about who Jesus is and what they need to do upon discovery of who he is, but they sit there. And they debate among themselves. Don't do that. Don't do that. Jesus demonstrated his authority. And he did that when he called his disciples to follow him. And they did. He did that when he taught in the synagogue. Or when he taught beside the lake. And when he would command the demons to come out, they would come out. You see, again, beloved, the whole point of these Gospels is to present to us who Jesus is. And upon discovering who he is, then you surrender yourself to him. There's no other possible response. You either receive him or reject him. What about you today? I hope that 
everyone in here believes. And that belief is more than intellectual. Let me show you something before we close. Go into James chapter 2. James chapter 2. You see that there are people out there that, that believe. And they believe like the demons believe. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons believe, but they shudder. See, they're up on you. Or the people he's talking to, obviously, that don't believe. See, they believe about God, and they believe some facts about God, because it's published widely. But they really don't believe. They don't believe to where it changes their life. And beloved, if your life hasn't been transformed, it needs to be, right? And Scripture tells us to repent, confess Him as Lord, tells us to receive Him, and it tells us to call upon Him. That whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's call on Him now. He's worthy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time that we've looked at Your Word today. Thank You for what is revealed here in these pages that we studied. What it tells us about the Lord Jesus. And my prayer is, is for everyone in here truly evaluate their heart, their life, their salvation to make sure it is of the Lord that they have truly been redeemed. They don't have just head facts, head knowledge. But that head knowledge translates to heart knowledge. It translates to action. It's more than just believing things, but it's acting on those things that you believe in. So Heavenly Father, do that work that you do so wonderfully as you work in our hearts. Thank you for the truths that we've